Section 5 of Protagoras by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Johnson. I made these and some similar observations, but Protagoras would not distinctly say which he would do. Thereupon Alcibiades turned to Callias and said, Do you think, Callias, that Protagoras is fair in refusing to say whether he will or will not answer? For I certainly think that he is unfair. He ought either to proceed with the argument, or distinctly refuse to proceed, that we may know his intention. And then Socrates will be able to discourse with someone else, and the rest of the company will be free to talk with one another. I think that Protagoras was really made ashamed by these words of Alcibiades, and when the prayers of Callias and the company were superadded, he was at last induced to argue, and said that I might ask, and he would answer. So I said, Do not imagine, Protagoras, that I have any other interest in asking questions of you but that of clearing up my own difficulties, for I think that Homer was very right in saying that when two go together, one sees before the other, parentheses, Iliad, end of parentheses. For all men who have a companion are readier in deed, word, or thought. But if a man sees a thing when he is alone, he goes away straightway, seeking until he finds some one to whom he may show his discoveries, and who may confirm him in them. And I would rather hold discourse with you than with any one because I think that no man has a better understanding of most things which a good man may be expected to understand, and in particular of virtue. For who is there but you, who not only claim to be a good man and a gentleman, for many are this, and yet have not the power of making others good, whereas you are not only good yourself, but also the cause of goodness in others. Moreover, such confidence have you in yourself, that although other sophists conceal their profession, you proclaim in the face of Hellas that you are a sophist or teacher of virtue and education, and are the first who demanded pay in return. How then can I do otherwise than invite you to the examination of these subjects, and ask questions and consult with you? I must indeed. And I should like once more to have my memory refreshed by you about the questions which I was asking you at first, and also to have your help in considering them. If I am not mistaken, the question was this. Are wisdom and temperance and courage and justice and holiness five names of the same thing? Or has each of the names a separate underlying essence and corresponding thing having a peculiar function? no one of them being like any other of them. And you replied that the five names were not the names of the same thing, but that each of them had a separate object, and that all these objects were parts of virtue, not in the same way that the parts of gold are like each other and the whole of which they are parts, but as the parts of the face are unlike the whole of which they are parts and one another and have each of them a distinct function. 
I should like to know whether this is still your opinion, or if not, I will ask you to define your meaning, and I shall not take you to task if you now make a different statement, for I dare say that you may have said what you did only in order to make trial of me. I answer, Socrates, he said, that all these qualities are parts of virtue, and that four out of the five are to some extent similar, and that the fifth of them, which is courage, is very different from the other four, as I prove in this way. You may observe that many men are utterly unrighteous, unholy, intemperate, ignorant, who are, nevertheless, remarkable for their courage. Stop, I said, I should like to think about that. When you speak of brave men, do you mean the confident or another sort of nature? Yes, he said, I mean the impetuous, ready to go at that which others are afraid to approach. In the next place, you would affirm virtue to be a good thing, of which good thing you assert yourself to be a teacher. Yes, he said, I should say the best of all things, if I am in my right mind. And is it partly good and partly bad, I said, or wholly good? Wholly good, and in the highest degree. Tell me then, who are they who have confidence when diving into a well? I should say the divers. And the reason of this is that they have knowledge. Yes, that is the reason. And who have confidence when fighting on horseback, the skilled horsemen or the unskilled? The skilled. And who, when fighting with light shields, the peltasts or the non-peltasts? The peltasts. And that is true of all other things, he said, if that is your point. Those who have knowledge are more confident than those who have no knowledge, and they are more confident after they have learned than before. And have you not seen persons utterly ignorant, I said, of these things, and yet confident about them? Yes, he said, I have seen such persons far too confident. And are not these confident persons also courageous? In that case, he replied, courage would be a base thing, for the men of whom we are speaking are surely madmen then who are the courageous? Are they not the confident? Yes, he said, to that statement I adhere. And those, I said, who are thus confident without knowledge are really not courageous, but mad. And in that case, the wisest are also the most confident, and being the most confident are also the bravest. And upon that view again, wisdom will be courage. Nay, Socrates, he replied, you are mistaken in your remembrance of what was said by me. When you asked me, I certainly did say that the courageous are the confident, but I was never asked whether the confident are the courageous. If you had asked me, I should have answered not all of them. And what I did answer you have not proved to be false, although you proceeded to show that those who have knowledge are more courageous than they were before they had knowledge, and more courageous than others who have no knowledge, and were then led on to think that courage is the same as wisdom. 
but in this way of arguing you might come to imagine that strength is wisdom you might begin by asking whether the strong are able and i should say yes and then whether those who know how to wrestle are not more able to wrestle than those who do not know how to wrestle and more able after than before they had learned and i should assent and when i had admitted this you might use my admissions in such a way as to prove that upon my view wisdom is strength whereas in that case i should not have admitted any more than in the other that the able are strong although i have admitted that the strong are able for there is a difference between ability and strength the former is given by knowledge as well as by madness or rage but strength comes from nature and a healthy state of the body and in like manner i say of confidence and courage that they are not the same and i argue that the courageous are confident but not all the confident courageous for confidence may be given to men by art and also like ability by madness and rage but courage comes to them from nature and the healthy state of the soul i said you would admit protagoras that some men live well and others ill he assented and do you think that a man lives well who lives in pain and grief he does not but if he lives pleasantly to the end of his life will he not in that case have lived well he will then to live pleasantly is a good and to live unpleasantly an evil yes he said if the pleasure be good and honourable and do you protagoras like the rest of the world call some pleasant things evil and some painful things good for i am rather disposed to say that things are good in as far as they are pleasant if they have no consequences of another sort and in as far as they are painful they are bad i do not know socrates he said whether i can venture to assert in that unqualified manner that the pleasant is the good and the painful the evil having regard not only to my present answer but also to the whole of my life i shall be safer if i am not mistaken in saying that there are some pleasant things which are not good and that there are some painful things which are good and some which are not good and that there are some which are neither good nor evil and you would call pleasant i said the things which participate in pleasure or create pleasure certainly he said then my meaning is that in as far as they are pleasant they are good and my question would imply that pleasure is a good in itself according to your favourite mode of speech socrates let us reflect about this he said and if the reflection is to the point and the result proves that pleasure and good are really the same then we will agree but if not then we will argue and would you wish to begin the enquiry i said or shall i begin you ought to take the lead he said for you are the author of the discussion may i employ an illustration i said suppose someone who is inquiring into the health or some other bodily quality of another he looks at his face and at the tips of his fingers and then he says uncover your chest and back to me 
that I may have a better view. That is the sort of thing which I desire in this speculation. Having seen what your opinion is about good and pleasure, I am minded to say to you, Uncover your mind to me, Protagoras, and reveal your opinion about knowledge, that I may know whether you agree with the rest of the world. Now, the rest of the world are of opinion that knowledge is a principle not of strength, or of rule, or of command. Their notion is that a man may have knowledge, and yet that the knowledge which is in him may be overmastered by anger, or pleasure, or pain, or love, or perhaps by fear, just as if knowledge were a slave, and might be dragged about anyhow. Now is that your view, or do you think that knowledge is a noble and commanding thing, which cannot be overcome, and will not allow a man, if he only knows the difference of good and evil, to do anything which is contrary to knowledge, but that wisdom will have strength to help him? I agree with you, Socrates, said Protagoras, and not only so, but I, above all other men, am bound to say that wisdom and knowledge are the highest of human things. Good, I said, and true, but are you aware that the majority of the world are of another mind, and that men are commonly supposed to know the things which are best, and not to do them when they might? And most persons whom I have asked the reason of this have said that when men act contrary to knowledge, they are overcome by pain or pleasure or some of those affections which I was just now mentioning. Yes, Socrates, he replied, and that is not the only point about which mankind are in error. Suppose then that you and I endeavour to instruct and inform them what is the nature of this affection which they call being overcome by pleasure, and which they affirm to be the reason why they do not always do what is best. When we say to them, Friends, you are mistaken, and are saying what is not true, they would probably reply, Socrates and Protagoras, If this affection of the soul is not to be called being overcome by pleasure, pray, what is it? and by what name would you describe it? But why, Socrates, should we trouble ourselves about the opinion of the many, who just say anything that happens to occur to them? I believe, I said, that they may be of use in helping us to discover how courage is related to the other parts of virtue. If you are disposed to abide by our agreement, that I should show the way in which, as I think, our recent difficulty is most likely to be cleared up. Do you follow? But if not, never mind. You are quite right, he said, and I would have you proceed as you have begun. Well then, I said, let me suppose that they repeat their question. What account do you give of that which, in our way of speaking, is termed being overcome by pleasure? I should answer thus, listen, and Protagoras and I will endeavour to show you, when men are overcome by eating and drinking and other sensual desires which are pleasant, and they, knowing them to be evil, nevertheless indulge in them, 
would you not say that they were overcome by pleasure they will not deny this and suppose that you and i were to go on and ask them again in what way do you say that they are evil in that they are pleasant and give pleasure at the moment or because they cause disease and poverty and other like evils in the future would they still be evil if they had no attendant evil consequences simply because they give the consciousness of pleasure of whatever nature would they not answer that they are not evil on account of the pleasure which is immediately given by them but on account of the after consequences diseases and the like i believe said protagoras that the world in general would answer as you do and in causing diseases do they not cause pain and in causing poverty do they not cause pain they would agree to that also if i am not mistaken protagoras assented then i should say to them in my name and yours do you think them evil for any other reason except because they end in pain and rob us of other pleasures there again they would agree we both of us thought that they would and then i should take the question from the opposite point of view and say friends when you speak of goods being painful do you not mean remedial goods such as gymnastic exercises and military service and the physician's use of burning cutting drugging and starving are these the things which are good but painful they would assent to me he agreed and do you call them good because they occasion the greatest immediate suffering and pain or because afterwards they bring health and improvement of the bodily condition and the salvation of states and power over others and wealth they would agree to the latter alternative if i am not mistaken he assented are these things good for any other reason except that they end in pleasure and get rid of and avert pain are you looking to any other standard but pleasure and pain when you call them good they would acknowledge that they were not i think so said protagoras and do you not pursue after pleasure as a good and avoid pain as an evil he assented then you think that pain is an evil and pleasure is a good and even pleasure you deem an evil when it robs you of greater pleasures than it gives or causes pains greater than the pleasure if however you call pleasure an evil in relation to some other end or standard you will be able to show us that standard but you have none to show i do not think that they have said protagoras and have you not a similar way of speaking about pain you call pain a good when it takes away greater pains than those which it has or gives pleasures greater than the pains then if you have some standard other than pleasure and pain to which you refer when you call actual pain a good you can show what that is but you cannot true said protagoras suppose again i said that the world says to me why do you spend many words and speak in many ways on this subject 
Excuse me, friends, I should reply. But in the first place there is a difficulty in explaining the meaning of the expression overcome by pleasure, and the whole argument turns upon this. And even now, if you see any possible way in which evil can be explained as other than pain, or good as other than pleasure, you may still retract. Are you satisfied then at having a life of pleasure which is without pain? If you are, and if you are unable to show any good or evil which does not end in pleasure and pain, hear the consequences. If what you say is true, then the argument is absurd, which affirms that a man often does evil knowingly, when he might abstain, because he is seduced and overpowered by pleasure. Or again, when you say that a man knowingly refuses to do what is good, because he is overcome at the moment by pleasure, and that this is ridiculous, will be evident if only we give up the use of various names, such as pleasant and painful and good and evil. As there are two things, let us call them by two names, first good and evil, and then pleasant and painful. Assuming this, let us go on to say that a man does evil knowing that he does evil. But someone will ask, why? Because he is overcome, is the first answer. And by what is he overcome? The inquirer will proceed to ask. And we shall not be able to reply by pleasure, for the name of pleasure has been exchanged for that of good. In our answer, then, we shall only say that he is overcome. By what? He will reiterate. By the good, we shall have to reply. Indeed, we shall. Nay, but our questioner will rejoin with a laugh if he be one of the swaggering sort, that is too ridiculous that a man should do what he knows to be evil when he ought not, because he is overcome by good? Is that, he will ask, because the good was worthy or not worthy of conquering the evil? And in answer to that we shall clearly reply, because it was not worthy, for if it had been worthy, then he who, as we say, was overcome by pleasure, would not have been wrong. But how, he will reply, can the good be unworthy of the evil, or the evil of the good? Is not the real explanation that they are out of proportion to one another, either as greater and smaller, or more and fewer? This we cannot deny. And when you speak of being overcome, what do you mean, he will say? but that you choose the greater evil in exchange for the lesser good, admitted. And now substitute the names of pleasure and pain for good and evil, and say not as before that a man does what is evil knowingly, but that he does what is painful knowingly, and because he is overcome by pleasure, which is unworthy to overcome. What measure is there of the relations of pleasure to pain other than excess and defect, which means that they become greater and smaller, and more and fewer, and differ in degree? For if any one says, yes, Socrates, but immediate pleasure differs widely from future pleasure and pain, to that I should reply, and do they differ in anything but in pleasure and pain? 
there can be no other measure of them and do you like a skilful weigher put into the balance the pleasures and the pains and their nearness and distance and weigh them and then say which outweighs the other if you weigh pleasures against pleasures you of course take the more and greater or if you weigh pains against pains you take the fewer and the less or if pleasures against pains then you choose that course of action in which the painful is exceeded by the pleasant whether the distant by the near or the near by the distant and you avoid that course of action in which the pleasant is exceeded by the painful would you not admit my friends that this is true i am confident that they cannot deny this he agreed with me well then i shall say if you agree so far be so good as to answer me a question do not the same magnitudes appear larger to your sight when near and smaller when at a distance they will acknowledge that and the same holds of thickness and number also sounds which are in themselves equal are greater when near and lesser when at a distance they will grant that also now suppose happiness to consist in doing or choosing the greater and in not doing or in avoiding the less what would be the saving principle of human life would not the art of measuring be the saving principle or would the power of appearance is not the latter that deceiving art which makes us wander up and down and take the things at one time of which we repent at another both in our actions and in our choice of things great and small but the art of measurement would do away with the effect of appearances and showing the truth would fain teach the soul at last to find rest in the truth and would thus save our life would not mankind generally acknowledge that the art which accomplishes this result is the art of measurement yes he said the art of measurement suppose again the salvation of human life to depend on the choice of odd and even and on the knowledge of when a man ought to choose the greater or less either in reference to themselves or to each other and whether near or at a distance what would be the saving principle of our lives would not knowledge a knowledge of measuring when the question is one of excess and defect and a knowledge of number when the question is of odd and even the world will assent will they not protagoras himself thought that they would well then my friends i say to them seeing that the salvation of human life has been found to consist in the right choice of pleasures and pains in the choice of the more and the fewer and the greater and the less and the nearer and the remoter must not this measuring be a consideration of their excess and defect and equality in relation to each other this is undeniably true and this as possessing measure must undeniably also be an art and science they will agree he said the nature of that art or science will be a matter of future consideration but the existence of such a science furnishes a demonstrative answer 
to the question which you asked of me and Protagoras. At the time when you asked the question, if you remember, both of us were agreeing that there was nothing mightier than knowledge, and that knowledge, in whatever existing, must have the advantage over pleasure and all other things. And then you said that pleasure often got the advantage even over a man who has knowledge, and we refused to allow this, and you rejoined, O Protagoras and Socrates, what is the meaning of being overcome by pleasure, if not this? Tell us what you call such a state. If we had immediately and at the time answered ignorance, you would have laughed at us. But now in laughing at us, you will be laughing at yourselves. For you also admitted that men err in their choice of pleasures and pains, that is, in their choice of good and evil, from defect of knowledge. And you admitted further that they err not only from defect of knowledge in general, but of that particular knowledge which is called measuring. And you are also aware that the erring act which is done without knowledge is done in ignorance. This, therefore, is the meaning of being overcome by pleasure, ignorance, and that the greatest. And our friends Protagoras and Prodicus and Hippias declare that they are the physicians of ignorance. But you who are under the mistaken impression that ignorance is not the cause, and that the art of which I am speaking cannot be taught, neither go yourselves nor send your children to the sophists, who are the teachers of these things. You take care of your money and give them none. And the result is that you are the worse off both in public and private life. Let us suppose this to be our answer to the world in general. And now I should like to ask you, Hippias, and you, Prodicus, as well as Protagoras, for the argument is to be yours as well as ours, whether you think that I am speaking the truth or not. They all thought that what I said was entirely true. Then you agree, I said, that the pleasant is the good, and the painful evil. And here I would beg my friend, Prodicus, not to introduce his distinction of names, whether he is disposed to say pleasurable, delightful, joyful. However, by whatever name he prefers to call them, I will ask you, most excellent Prodicus, to answer in my sense of the words. Prodicus laughed and assented, as did the others. Then, my friends, what do you say to this? Are not all actions honourable and useful, of which the tendency is to make life painless and pleasant? The honourable work is also useful and good. This was admitted. Then I said, if the pleasant is the good, nobody does anything under the idea or conviction that some other thing would be better and is also attainable, when he might do the better. And this inferiority of a man to himself is merely ignorance, as the superiority of a man to himself is wisdom. They all assented. And is not ignorance the having a false opinion and being deceived about important matters? To this also they unanimously assented. Then I said, No man voluntarily pursues evil, or that which he thinks to be evil. 
to prefer evil to good is not in human nature and when a man is compelled to choose one of two evils no one will choose the greater when he may have the less all of us agreed to every word of this well i said there is a certain thing called fear or terror and here prodicus i should particularly like to know whether you would agree with me in defining this fear or terror as expectation of evil protagoras and hippias agreed but prodicus said that this was fear and not terror never mind prodicus i said but let me ask whether if our former assertions are true a man will pursue that which he fears when he is not compelled would not this be in flat contradiction to the admission which has been already made that he thinks the things which he fears to be evil and no one will pursue or voluntarily accept that which he thinks to be evil that also was universally admitted then i said these hippias and prodicus are our premises and i would beg protagoras to explain to us how he can be right in what he said at first i do not mean in what he said quite at first for his first statement as you may remember was that whereas there were five parts of virtue none of them was like any other of them each of them had a separate function to this however i am not referring but to the assertion which he afterwards made that of the five virtues four were nearly akin to each other but that the fifth which was courage differed greatly from the others and of this he gave me the following proof he said you will find socrates that some of the most impious and unrighteous and intemperate and ignorant of men are among the most courageous which proves that courage is very different from the other parts of virtue i was surprised at his saying this at the time and i am still more surprised now that i have discussed the matter with you so i asked him whether by the brave he meant the confident yes he replied and the impetuous or goers you may remember protagoras that this was your answer he assented well then i said tell us against what are the courageous ready to go against the same dangers as the cowards no he answered then against something different yes he said then do cowards go where there is safety and the courageous where there is danger yes socrates so men say very true i said but i want to know against what do you say that the courageous are ready to go against dangers believing them to be dangers or not against dangers no said he the former case has been proved by you in the previous argument to be impossible that again i replied is quite true and if this has been rightly proven then no one goes to meet what he thinks to be dangers since the want of self-control which makes men rush into dangers has been shown to be ignorance he assented and yet the courageous man and the coward alike go to meet that about which they are confident so that in this point of view 
the cowardly and the courageous go to meet the same things and yet socrates said protagoras that to which the coward goes is the opposite of that to which the courageous goes the one for example is ready to go to battle and the other is not ready and is going to battle honourable or disgraceful i said honourable he replied and if honourable then already admitted by us to be good for all honourable actions we have admitted to be good that is true and to that opinion i shall always adhere true i said but which of the two are they who as you say are unwilling to go to war which is a good and honourable thing the cowards he replied and what is good and honourable i said is also pleasant it has certainly been acknowledged to be so he replied and do the cowards knowingly refuse to go to the nobler and pleasanter and better the admission of that he replied would belie our former admissions but does not the courageous man also go to meet the better and pleasanter and nobler that must be admitted and the courageous man has no base fear or base confidence true he replied and if not base then honourable he admitted this and if honourable then good yes but the fear and confidence of the coward or foolhardy or madman on the contrary are base he assented and these base fears and confidences originate in ignorance and uninstructedness true he said then as to the motive from which the cowards act do you call it cowardice or courage i should say cowardice he replied and have they not been shown to be cowards through their ignorance of dangers assuredly he said and because of that ignorance they are cowards he assented and the reason why they are cowards is admitted by you to be cowardice he again assented then the ignorance of what is and is not dangerous is cowardice he nodded assent but surely courage i said is opposed to cowardice yes then the wisdom which knows what are and are not dangers is opposed to the ignorance of them to that again he nodded assent and the ignorance of them is cowardice to that he very reluctantly nodded assent and the knowledge of that which is and is not dangerous is courage and is opposed to the ignorance of these things at this point he would no longer nod assent but was silent and why i said do you neither assent nor dissent protagoras finish the argument by yourself he said i only want to ask one more question i said i want to know whether you still think that there are men who are most ignorant and yet most courageous you seem to have a great ambition to make me answer socrates and therefore i will gratify you and say that this appears to me to be impossible consistently with the argument my only object i said in continuing the discussion has been the desire to ascertain the nature and relations of virtue for if this were clear i am very sure 
that the other controversy which has been carried on at great length by both of us you affirming and i denying that virtue can be taught would also become clear the result of our discussion appears to me to be singular for if the argument had a human voice that voice would be heard laughing at us and saying protagoras and socrates you are strange beings there are you socrates who were saying that virtue cannot be taught contradicting yourself now by your attempt to prove that all things are knowledge including justice and temperance and courage which tends to show that virtue can certainly be taught for if virtue were other than knowledge as protagoras attempted to prove then clearly virtue cannot be taught but if virtue is entirely knowledge as you are seeking to show then i cannot but suppose that virtue is capable of being taught protagoras on the other hand who started by saying that it might be taught is now eager to prove it to be anything rather than knowledge and if this is true it must be quite incapable of being taught now i protagoras perceiving this terrible confusion of our ideas have a great desire that they should be cleared up and i should like to carry on the discussion until we ascertain what virtue is whether capable of being taught or not lest haply epimetheus should trip us up and deceive us in the argument as he forgot us in the story i prefer your prometheus to your epimetheus for of him i make use whenever i am busy about these questions in promethean care of my own life and if you have no objection as i said at first i should like to have your help in the inquiry protagoras replied socrates i am not of a base nature and i am the last man in the world to be envious i cannot but applaud your energy and your conduct of an argument as i have often said i admire you above all men whom i know and far above all men of your age and i believe that you will become very eminent in philosophy let us come back to the subject at some future time at present we had better turn to something else by all means i said if that is your wish for i too ought long since to have kept the engagement of which i spoke before and only tarried because i could not refuse the request of the noble callias so the conversation ended and we went our way End of part five. Recording by Kevin Johnson. End of Protagoras by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett.